Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. This is one of those times of year where we're all kind of struggling with illness. We felt that a little bit this morning, had several folks missing. But did you know that pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone else sick except the person who has it? Uh, Our pride can blind us and it can prevent us from seeing ourselves as we truly are and most importantly, from seeing ourselves as we truly are before God. Now, I want you to note this with me as we walk through this section tonight, that you and I must humbly acknowledge the greatness, the power, and the rule of God in our lives and in our world. Now listen, that can be a hard thing for us to acknowledge. There there is a sense for us in our minds that we have got a grasp, that we kind of have control of whatever scope our world fits into. We kind of can control that. We can control our, our, our medical history or diagnosis or what's going on. We can control uh, relationships that are around us. We can control outcomes. And the truth is, and what we need to observe tonight, and this is the lesson, you are nowhere near as in control as you think you are. <laughs> that is just the reality. You are not in control. You are not in charge. None of us are. And what I, again, want you to remember about the book of Daniel, it's so important, is that our world lives as if there is no God. This arrogant, God-denying sovereignty of man. It is not new. Nebuchadnezzar had it, the Assyrians before him, the Persians after him, the Greeks after him, the Romans, every empire that's ever existed. It exists on the premise that we somehow are in charge. And yet, as believers, we know nothing could be further from the truth. And Daniel, this prophecy demonstrates that over and over and over and over again. The advance of God's kingdom will occur. God is in charge. Even in the midst of exile, even in the midst of a foreign land, over and over again through the narrative sections, the first six chapters of this book of Daniel, we see it. God's actually in control. And he can and must be trusted. This is the theme of Daniel throughout. Now, as we begin again, those first three verses, Nebuchadnezzar, in some respects, he is testifying. He is, in essence, giving a testimony about the greatest king. 
And there are some shocking elements to the things that Nebuchadnezzar will acknowledge. There are some shocking twists to the things that he is going to say. Now remember a couple things that are important. First of all, this is a, this is a prologue. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to state the greatness of God. And he's making this declaration publicly to all the people of Babylon. He, he's making this statement to them. This is a confession. It's an acknowledgement. And it would have been humbling for a pagan king to acknowledge that a foreign deity, not his, was bigger was more powerful, was more majestic, was more worthy of praise than his own. Remember, when Daniel and his three friends come to Babylon, what's the first thing they do? They change their names, but they change their names from Yahweh-focused names to pagan God-focused names. That's intentional. It's an intentional turn trying to turn them from their loyalty to their God. Folks, consider now in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar says, nope, their God is great. Their God is mighty. There isn't any God like their God. Their God is the most high God. Do you realize that phrase occurs more in chapter 4 than any other spot in this whole book? The most high. There isn't anyone like this God. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. Now, the other piece that I want you to see with me, and I want you to actually see it. So take your Bible, turn back with me to Psalm 145. I want you to turn to Psalm 145, and I want you to stick your, your finger there, hold it there, and I'm going to read to you again the statements by Nebuchadnezzar, what he is saying about God. And the question is, and I don't know, maybe Daniel was running a discipleship class and uh, Nebuchadnezzar is the primary student. I don't know, but I'll tell you this. His statement, his affirmation about God sounds a lot like the psalmist's affirmation of God in Psalm 145. So put your finger there, Psalm 145, look at verse 13. A, the first part of that verse, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule is for all generations. Now I'm going to read you what Nebuchadnezzar says. Here's what he says. Second part of verse 3. You're looking at Psalm 145. I want you to tell me how they sound. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. And his dominion is from generation to generation. Look familiar? It's almost like he's quoting Psalm 145. I mean, that's pretty amazing. If you think about it, that is pretty fascinating that a pagan king who is his allegiance is to his foreign gods, he states, he affirms this statement about God from Psalm 145. And it's important for us to note this because it emphasizes, again, the characteristics, the attributes of God. Think through the attributes that Nebuchadnezzar is offering. The greatness of God, the might, the power of God, the eternality of God. Folks, listen to me. That is distinctive. 
The, the, the eternality of God is part of, in my mind, His holiness. There is no God who has always been and will always be. Nebuchadnezzar affirms that. He is everlasting, eternal. I mean, <laughs> that's amazing. And he is sovereign over the generations of humanity. In essence, what Nebuchadnezzar is stating is, this generation alive right now, God's in charge of us. But folks, listen, the next generation, he's going to be in charge of you too. And the one that follows that, he'll be in charge of you too. And the one that we currently live in right now, guess what? He's in charge of that one as well. Nebuchadnezzar understood that. Now stop and think for a moment. Do you? Do we? Do we, do we believe this? I, I want you to think for a moment. And, and I'm, I'm going to go from preaching to meddling here for just a second. And, and I'm going to do it because guess what year we find ourselves in again? An election year. Hallelujah. It's a, it's a, election years are given to try the souls of, of men. All right? Uh, I, I, I think. But I want you to remember back to three and a half, four years ago. I want you to remember back to the rumors, the statements of a stolen election. And I want you to put that onto this. And I want you in your mind to answer the question, is that possible? Do you understand that if indeed that is what happened, it was under the power and control of God Almighty? He, he did not lose control for a few moments in November of 2020. And folks, believers more than anyone else should get that. And should maybe be a little less loyal to one who would suggest otherwise. Right? I know, you're not going to amen on that. But it's true. It's true. And we need to be careful of that. As believers, we can be some of the, how should we say, most afraid over things like that. Listen, that should not happen to God's people. And if you're honest, if you're honest to some extent, that happens to us. It happened to me. There were times I thought, this is, this is bad. This is weird. I don't know what happened there. I'm going to track what's going on with the updates. I'm going to see what's going to happen in the courts. As we all know at this point, Nothing. Nothing. Right? And the truth is, since 1994, every single time somebody gets elected that, that my side, I, I perceived was not on my side, I have thought in my mind, that's it, we're done. It's over. It's all over. 1994. Here, here we are almost 30 years later. It's not over. Right? It's not, here we are. I, I don't know how we've made it. Really, I don't. I don't know how we've made it at times. And yet, 
here we are. Why? Because it's actually not about that. And folks, the thing we have to remember is, and we do have to remember this, God is in control. Now, it doesn't mean we don't do our duty or fulfill our responsibilities. I'm not saying that. I'm not telling you don't, don't vote because it doesn't matter. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, go do your civic duty. Help, volunteer, whatever. But leave the results to God. Because the truth is, and we see it here, God lifts men up and God puts them down. And folks, to be blunt, it doesn't matter who's elected. It doesn't matter by how much they're elected. That man could be gone three days later, especially the age of the ones we have running. You never know. Really, we, we don't know. I, I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. Goodness, somebody that's, you know, those ages, I don't know that they are either. But we get so enamored. Ooh, what about, I'm not sure. Uh. God takes the ruling power of the world and sends him into the woods to live like a dog, like a, an animal for seven years. Number one, number two, you wouldn't think he'd have a throne to come back to, would you? In this day and time, you know how most men in the ancient world lost their throne? A coup. They're, they're kids. Why didn't somebody sneak out in the woods and kill this guy? He was off his nut. He, he, he was crazy. Literally, he was certifiable. Why wasn't he killed? Because God said he wouldn't be. And he was going to get his throne. That's it. And the truth is, at the end of this whole experience, Nebuchadnezzar gets it. God's actually the one in control. God is hovering over the affairs of humanity and he is accomplishing his purpose and you can trust him. Do you? Do you really trust him? That's our issue. So now Nebuchadnezzar verses 4 and following, he's going to give a story. Initially, he gives it to the Chaldeans, all the wise men. We've seen this before, right? We've been here in chapter 2. They don't know what to do. Now, there is debate uh, by writers about this that they potentially knew the meaning of this. They did not have the courage to tell them. They, 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 they knew. I mean, this is not the hardest dream to interpret. You know, Daniel hears it. And he, it, it strikes him right away. So some debate, they, they did not want to give him the bad news. So he calls Daniel and he says, I know Daniel. Daniel can tell me. Belteshazzar, he's going to tell me. Uh, he's been named after my God, which is ironic, right? All the things he's going to say about uh, our God, Yahweh, he still uh, is clinging, initially at least in the story, He's clinging to his gods. He's still a polytheist, right? He's got a lot of them. He'll just add Daniel's God onto the pile of gods that he already has. And so he tells the story. It's about a tree. Now, one thing that's interesting about the dream is it starts out with the tree, the imagery of the tree, and then it moves to animals and living as an animal out among animals. And there's going to be this period, seven periods, which is what we 
have, we, we can determine from that, uh, I think pretty clearly, probably this is seven years. And then um, the other piece that's interesting of note, we have a couple times that this word watcher or watchers is used. And there's a couple of different interpretations on that. Probably the easiest one for us is angel. This is an angel who's giving this declaration, who's giving this message. And uh, his declaration, his decree uh, is offered to Nebuchadnezzar. And this is going to happen. But down in verse 17, we have the reason. And what I want you to note in verse 17, this isn't just the reason for this message message it's the reason for every message God gives so note this with me in the middle of verse 17 so this is the word or this word is by decree of the watchers and the decision is by command from the holy ones this is so that the living will know all the living on the earth will know that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. This is the purpose. The purpose of this whole thing is so that everyone alive will know that the Most High, he's in charge, he's the ruler, he's the sovereign over all human kingdoms, everywhere, from all time. And people don't come to power, they don't rise to power, and they don't fall from power without God's knowledge, control, um, without his work, right? This is his work. That's what Daniel 4 reminds us of. This is God's work. He is maintaining his creation and not in a hands-off way. He is in control over all human kingdoms. And then he goes on and he says he gives them to anyone. And this phrase is important because he's going to repeat it several times. He gives them to anyone he wants and he sets the lowliest of people over them. Now, why is that in some respects significant? Because Nebuchadnezzar does not see himself as one of the lowliest people. Nebuchadnezzar perceives himself to be what? One of the greatest people a general, elite, in his ability to conquer, in his ability to build, in his ability to uh, govern, right? He perceives himself to be elite. But God says, don't forget, I put the lowliest people into these spots. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you are in relation to me. And so Nebuchadnezzar finishes, this is, this is my dream. And then he says to Belshazzar, which because of the Aramaic, we have the, the name Belshazzar used primarily rather than Daniel throughout this account. And because I think it's, it's Nebuchadnezzar speaking. So then Daniel, the narrator is going to bring him in in verse 19. And one of the pieces that I want you to note with me in verse 19. So Daniel whose name is Belteshazzar, he was stunned for a moment. Now, in the Hebrew, which is not Hebrew, but that's all I have. They, they put it kind of back into Hebrew from the Aramaic, right? So I can kind of track it a little bit. 
But in the original, it doesn't say a moment. It says an hour. So Daniel is stunned, and he is silent. Now, is it a literal hour? It, the perception of this is like it, it's a linguistic way of saying he was so taken aback, he was surprised for some period of time. We don't know how, how long. Uh, but in the original, it says an hour. And, and, and that was jarring to me because when we read a moment, we think, you know, Daniel's surprised, but then he kind of gathers himself and starts to speak. I don't know if that was quick. I mean, you, you ever go into a scenario and you say something and it feels like you could cut the silence in the room with something tangible. You know, if you had a knife, you could, you could cut the silence in the room. That's the feeling here with Daniel. This message, this dream is given, and Nebuchadnezzar says, Okay, Daniel, I know you can do it. Tell me what it means. And Daniel is overwhelmed. Daniel is afraid. Now, what's interesting is, again, look back at verse 4, verse 5. Two words for fear, frightened and alarmed, both describing Nebuchadnezzar's initial response to his dream. Now fast forward to verse 19. We have alarmed, same word from verse 5. Daniel is alarmed. And the word alarmed here is the idea of he is horrified. There is this terror that literally paralyzes him. He is so afraid, so taken aback by this dream and what it means for the king. For a moment, he can't respond. He's overwhelmed. And so then he, the king says, obviously he's taking that in, and he says, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Don't let this scare you. Don't let it frighten you. Just tell me what it means. Now, the other piece that I find fascinating is Daniel's response to the king. Think this through for a minute. Daniel, some have suggested, and I don't think it's accurate, but some have suggested that this dream, that this period in Nebuchadnezzar's life occurs around the time that Nebuchadnezzar goes back a second time to Jerusalem and flattens it, 586. He goes back and he just wipes it out. It's done. Now, some have said probably that is contrived just because it fits, you know, somebody's desired, you know, time frame. And, and I don't know. But certainly this happens some point after that time. And I want you to think for Daniel, what would your response be if you're standing before the ruler who has leveled South Bend and you are now his captive and you work for him and this dream, this is his dream. What's your thought? You're finally getting what you deserve, pal. Like you are the worst of the worst. What blows my mind in some ways is Daniel's compassion for the king. Contrast that to Jonah. 
Jonah didn't even want to go preach to the Ninevites because he knew how God was. Daniel's actually going to suggest how the king could avoid this. Which, again, it's amazing. So Daniel, initially he says, listen, may the dream apply to those who hate you rather than you. That is a compassion that only comes from somebody who's truly transformed by God. This man ruined Daniel's life. This man literally, in all likelihood, made it so Daniel could not or did not want to ever get married for his entire life. That is what happened to male captives. And yet Daniel has compassion on the king. It's, it's amazing. How do we respond to people like that? You know, most of us, somebody says a cross word to us, and we kind of cling to that for like years. You know? Can you imagine your home being wiped out, your parents killed, your, your family killed, your best friends thrown up in front of the fiery furnace? We don't know how long ago, or maybe that's still to come. We don't know. But you're working for this guy, and he's a tyrant to some extent. He's a tyrant. He's cruel. He's wiped out your homeland. And you have that compassion on him. Folks, it demonstrates the level of compassion and forgiveness we can have toward people who have wronged us so grievously that we almost can't put it into words. We still can forgive and have mercy toward them. Daniel demonstrates that. He goes on. He talks through the whole thing. He gives the interpretation. We know to some extent what that is. Again, he's going he's gonna to warn him. And tell, this is going to happen until you acknowledge the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. And once again, he gives them to anyone he wants. Who sets up rulers? God does. Not elections. God does. Right? Well, certainly in America we have elections. But God still sets up the ruler. And we can trust that. We can rest in that. So he goes on. And he finishes. And I love the way he finishes. Verse 27, he says, Therefore, may my advice, my advice seem good to you, my king. He is pleading with the king here to live differently. He says, separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. He says, King, we both know you've taken advantage of people. We both know you've ruled as a tyrant in some ways. Stop it. Stop that. Put that aside. Humble yourself. Look out for the needy. Show mercy. Why? Perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. Would you want prosperity for this guy? If you're Daniel, and that's Daniel's word. Listen, there may be a way to stay God's wrath. Amazing. But in truth, Nebuchadnezzar can't help himself because he, like all of us, is really, really proud. He can't help but look at what he has and say, look what I've done. Look what I've built. Look what I've accomplished. Look at who I am. This great Babylon, look at what I 
did. And God himself delivers the message, the consequence. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar, now's the time. Head on out into the woods. Act like an animal for seven years until you get it. And at that moment, verse 33, at that moment, it was fulfilled and he left his people. Now, the other thing I find fascinating is even in the retelling of this account, isn't there part of you, isn't there part of you that would like to know where, where did he go? If you look at pictures of Babylon, Babylon was this absolutely amazing city. In some ways, it was like a modern city. It was, it was, it was flourishing within the city walls. It was a magnificent city. Where do you go to act like this? Did Nebuchadnezzar go outside the city? Here's the point. It doesn't matter. And truthfully, even in the retelling of the story, God doesn't rub Nebuchadnezzar's nose in this. I mean, think about one verse. I mean, just for the sake of gossip, it would have been nice to know a little more about what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine them writing? Did anyone in the kingdom say, hey, this Nebuchadnezzar guy, where did he go? If there was such a thing as a gossip column, were they saying, we haven't seen Nebuchadnezzar, it's been two years now. He's disappeared. There is a weird guy outside the city walls who's got talons, it looks like, and really long hair. We know who that guy is. But we're looking for Nebuchadnezzar. He's gone on a long trip. Who knows? We don't know. And the Bible doesn't tell us. You want to know why? It's not the point. The point is verses 34 to 37 and verses 1 to 3. God is actually in charge. So much so that he can dismiss Nebuchadnezzar for seven years and no coup happens and Nebuchadnezzar comes back and he's still got his kingdom and he acknowledges before that kingdom God's actually in charge. God's actually in control of everything. Look what he says. Look at how he finishes verse 34. But at the end of those days, so seven years goes by, that quick, verse 33, bang, we're done with seven years. I, now first person again, we've gone back to it. I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven and my sanity returned. In essence, I got my mind back, right? And then what did I do? Three things. And he's not going to say it once. He's going to say it twice. Three things. I praised the most high and honored and glorified him who lives forever. Look at that. There's the eternality of God again. He is eternal. He has always been. He will always be. He is in control of the governments of mankind. And he always has been. But look what he says again down in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify. There it is again. Praise, honor, glorify. Praise, exalt, glorify. Listen, Nebuchadnezzar understood this. This God, he is worthy of praise. He is worthy to be exalted. He is worthy to be glorified. Listen to me. Do you get that? 
Do you understand that? Do we comprehend that? Are our hearts overflowing as we sing songs of his work and power, of his character? Are our hearts overflowing like Nebuchadnezzar's fuss? This, it is mind-blowing. And he goes on and he says, for his dominion, power, it's everlasting. Everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. Again, here's our theme of Daniel. God's kingdom, it will come to pass. You can't stop it. But even while we await that, God is in control over the kingdoms, the affairs of mankind. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does what he wants with the army of heaven. The inhabitants of the earth, there is no one who can block, stay his hand, or say to him, what have you done? And at that time, my sanity returned, and my majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. He acknowledges it returned to me, but now he doesn't say it returned to me because of me. <laughs> it, it returned to me, but it wasn't because of me, right? Truthfully, it was grace. He goes on, my advisors and my nobles, they sought me out and I was reestablished over the kingdom and even more greatness came to me. There's a sense in which that feels a little bit like Job too, doesn't it? How do you go from being the greatest king in the world to being even the greatest, greater king in the world? Well, it happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And then he says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise, exalt, glorify the king of the heavens because of all his works. All his works are true and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. As Nebuchadnezzar concludes, I want you to think about what he's saying. Because of the works of God, the works of God, they are true. Listen to me. That's one of the distinct attributes of God, truth. Nebuchadnezzar identifies it. God's justice, or we could say his righteousness. So everything he does is truth and just. God is righteous, God is just, and all he does, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that. He goes on. God has the power to humble even the greatest king in the world, which demonstrates his omnipotence, his omniscience clearly on display. The point of the account is more about God than it is about Nebuchadnezzar. And for a lot of us in our minds, we want to talk about his salvation. Here's the truth. We don't know. We don't. We don't know. And certainly some would argue, yes, Nebuchadnezzar, he was saved here. I don't know. I wouldn't debate that because I don't think that's the point. The point is the greatness of God. God is ruling over his creation. And because of that, you and I can absolutely rest in his care. You can trust him. No matter if it's with a personal scenario, trial, triumph. Or with a struggle in our country, in our community, in our city, in our county. We can Trust.
Will we? Will we? The truth is, we live in a very broken, pagan, sinful world. And at times, that can almost overwhelm us. We can feel like we're being crushed by that. But folks, what we've got to remember is exactly what's demonstrated here in Daniel 4. Our God is still in charge over our very pagan, secular culture. God is still in charge. He's the boss. And since we know him, we can rest. We can trust in him. Many, many years ago, May 18, 1980, most of you have heard of this, Mount St. Helens in the Cascade Range of Washington exploded with what probably is the most visible demonstration of the power of nature that the modern world has ever seen. And I don't know that you've ever heard much about the details, but here's a little bit of it. At 8.32 a.m., the explosion ripped a 1,300-foot hole or part off of the mountain with the force of 10 million tons of dynamite. That sounds like a lot. It was roughly equivalent to 500 Hiroshima bombs. 500. 60 people were killed. Most by a blast of 300 degree heat that traveled at 200 miles an hour. Some were killed as far as 16 miles away. It's almost a Plymouth, isn't it? Something like that. The blast also leveled 150 foot Douglas firs as far as 17 miles away. A total of 3.2 billion board feet of lumber were destroyed. Enough, think this through for a moment, enough to build 200,000 three-bedroom homes. That's God's power. And folks, at times we get overwhelmed because it doesn't look like things are going the way we anticipated. That's our God. <laughs> I think we could trust him. I think we can rest in his care. I think he's able. I think he can accomplish his purpose. If we'll look to him, he'll do it. The issue is, will we trust? Will you trust? Will you rest in him? There's a sense in which it's every bit as proud and arrogant when we try and assume control in our lives. I know what's best. I know what I need. I know what my family needs. Do you? Do you know best? Or can we, should we, trust our God? I think we should. And by God's grace, we can.